0: Now when we take this up today, you know, it's not all that common that I will preach from exactly the same verses two weeks in a row. But what we did last week is in looking through chapter 2 of Acts verse 14 through 41, we kind of backed up from it, and instead of looking at the the meat of what he was communicating, we kind of looked at the the overall themes, and in that, we really looked at what spirit-filled preaching looked like on the day of Pentecost, those themes that, that carried it, and we saw that there were five primary things in it, that it had a singular source, it comes from God. It comes from the word of God. We saw that it was scripture saturated, not just one passage, but more passages filling it up. We saw three, that it was doctrinally deep. We saw four, that it is content courageous, willing to say those things that are, that are rebuking, that are correcting, that are even rightly accusing. And we saw that it was earnestly expansive. He continued to press on with many words that they might lay hold of the truth of God's word. That's sort of overriding themes that we saw in it. Now what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at those scripture-saturated, doctrinally deep, content-courageous elements in a little more specificity today. So we saw the overarching view, and I wanna dig into it a little bit more today. And really, I would title it, um, as we see in here, Hear These Words, This Jesus. As you read through this in the ESV translation, three times in this passage, one, it simply says, Jesus, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, and then begins to explain. Three other times later, it says, This Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus, making that Unique and distinctive element. There were others, remember, who had that name for the Aramaic and Hebrew background. It was a name that we're more familiar with, Joshua, and there were others even at that time having that name. There would be some who would even come later, say in the book of Galatians and otherwise, pretending to preach the gospel, pretending to proclaim Jesus. But there is only one gospel, and there is only one Jesus that truly is Jesus, which is the God who saves. So as we take this up... I want us to see he begins sort of introductory by urging them to listen to what he has to say. I mean, in this world, it's not when it comes to spiritual truths, it's not a democracy. It's not that everyone has an equal voice. Ultimately, like we looked at last week, there's only one voice That truly matters when it comes to truth. That's the voice of God. And we have God's word given to us in the scriptures. Jesus, God's son, constantly said, and we saw it. He does not speak on his own, but whatever the father gives him, he speaks. In like manner, he sent the apostles who would not speak on their own, but the Spirit would give to them the things that Jesus had conveyed to them. So that we know what is true and what to believe. The world is clamoring. A multitude of religions are calling out, listen to us, follow us. But here, he begins it, really, you can see it in verse 14 of Acts 2. Men of Judea and all in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. He goes on to say in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. That's really what matters. We, we have far too much that takes place even in the context of Sunday mornings and weekly gatherings of the saints that are designed to deliver opinions of men. uh, Designed to communicate something where they're attempting to make it more culturally relevant, more modern, more acceptable. The reality is this. Truth... And nothing but the truth is ultimately what matters. And the truth of God is eternally relevant. There is nothing we can do to make it more relevant. I'll go so far as to say generally men's attempts to take the word of God. To take the truth of the gospel and make it easier to digest Or easier to accept or seemingly more modern and culturally relevant. What that actually does is it dilutes it. It leads to degrees of impurity and degrees of weakness. Let us never forget as it tells us in Romans chapter 1. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. There's no other power of God unto salvation. God in his wisdom has so determined that the Spirit will come, granting and working those graces in the heart of men through the hearing of the gospel, bringing them faith and repentance and obedience and following Christ. There's no other way. So if we abandon the gospel, if we weaken the gospel, if we hesitate regarding the gospel, you know what happens? Men are lost. Because there's no salvation apart from it. And, and the, the P- Peter here repeatedly says, give ear to these words. Give ear to what I say. Hear these words. These are not things to be taking, taken lightly. These men understood. They were heralds. They were proclaimers. They were to come, stand forth, and make known this message. They were to press it upon men that they might hear it, that they might understand this is truth. They might also understand, should you believe this? There is life, there is hope, there is glory, there is salvation. Should you reject this? There is no hope. There is no deliverance. You know, and, the, and people like to think, well, maybe there's a third category. Those who don't fully reject it, but those who aren't necessarily going to go all in. You know, those who can kind of be, yeah, I'm okay with it. Th- there is no third category. With regard to truth, you're either all in or you're not. There's no halfway. And when when he says these things, hear these words, give ear to this, let this be known to you. Really, he's preparing for this, and and I might paraphrase these ideas in a way that they would understand it. It would be something like this. Um, Listen to this, because much like it says in in the preceding verses, um, actually verse 15, for these people are not drunk as you suppose. Jesus was not a mere man, as you suppose. Jesus is not dead and buried and in the grave, like every other man never to rise, as you suppose. Ultimately, when it comes to eternal and spiritual truths, we might really be standing on firm ground when we say this. It's not as men suppose. Because God's way is not our way. His thoughts are not our thoughts. You know, we, we get messed up and confused and theologians even go so far as they begin to accuse God of, of some mistakes or, or wish that God had had them around to counsel Him in the days of the Garden of Eden. Then things would have worked out better had He had access to their wisdom and wit. Because why do He even make a tree of knowledge of good and evil? If He hadn't done that, We'd be good. And so men think they've got a better plan or a better way or a better scheme. They don't. And men respond, well, I don't understand. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair that all of mankind, every single one of them, will have fallen in Adam Separated from God, dead in their trespasses and sin, at enmity and estranged, because of the sin of one man, as it teaches us not only in Genesis, but expresses it so wonderfully clearly in Romans as we work our way from three, chapter three, four, and five. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair. You may suppose it not to be right. You may suppose it not to be fair, but things are not as you suppose. Things are as God says. So, I mean, by way of introduction, if I could say, you know, simply lay out what he's kind of doing here is that things are not as you suppose. Things are as God says. Amen. And this is what they need to get. And when I can say things are as God says, I can further bolster that by saying, it is as the scriptures say. In the words of Christ, it is written. And that's what we really have unfolding in this passage because these men to an extent are giving their own testimony, aren't they? We were with him, we saw him, we heard him. We saw him killed, we saw he was buried, and we have seen him risen from the dead. But what's interesting is, they're not expecting people to just take them at their word. Listen to our testimony. What they're doing is this. They're saying, our testimony is consistent with the word of God. What we're saying now has happened is what the word of God was always saying will happen. It said it's gonna happen. We're saying it has happened. Our testimony and our experience is consistent with the word of God. Oh, that the whole world would ha- take that kind of care, right? I've had an experience. I've had, an, I've had an, a, a thought, okay? Let me share with you what happened to me. Okay, but before you do that, take a moment and ask yourself, how does your experience accord with the scripture? Let the word of God interpret for you what your experience is. That way, it, it would be so helpful. The church in Galatia was being warned, look, if we come, Or even if an angel from heaven comes to you, bringing you a different gospel, let that one be accursed. But maybe someone's experience would be this. An angel from heaven came and spoke with me. How do you know he was from heaven? Well, he was glowing in the dark, you know. He was hovering above the earth and kind of, Went up when he was done. I mean, that's never happened before. And this is what he said. What Paul's saying, all right, what he said, what this, even if it's an angel, what he said doesn't matter if it's different from what God has said. This is the unchanging test. Remember, the faith has once for all been delivered to the saints. He has, in these last days, spoken to us through his son. There is nothing new. There is nothing different outside of the word. This is where we stay. This is where not only are we safe, but this is salvation. This is instruction. This is correction. This is hope. And so this alone leads to Christ. This alone reveals salvation. In this alone do we understand the spirit that is given. And how that spirit that is given to us indwells us, seals us, gifts us, equips us. Works in and through us the grace of God. Now let's begin to dig into some of the meat of these prophecies because there are a number of prophecies and the first one comes to us beginning in verse 16 says this In speaking about what's happening, as they're confused, all these different languages have been spoken, praising and glorifying and exalting God. And all the languages of the people who are gathered there, they're confused. They've got no frame of reference for what is going on. How is this happening? What is going on with these men in boldness? And some of them are astounded, saying, what does this mean, verse 12. And others of them, because they don't have an answer to what this means, They just begin mocking. How are these guys so thrilled, so excited, so exuberant, so bold to declare God in all of these different languages? Something like this has never happened before. Well, we see this and it says this in verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So, Again, he's not going to not gonna just blankly give the meaning. He uses the scripture. I love that when you begin to see Paul converted in Damascus and going into the temple to argue. He's proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. There's nowhere else to go to prove these things. Because every other supposed Form of truth. Doesn't hold itself up. Indeed the God who has delivered this truth. Is the very God who upholds the universe. By the word of his power. And so people want to point to. uh, Theories about the origins of the universe. About things they know not of. They know not how it began. They know not how it continues. They know not how it will end but we know because the one who did it does it and will bring it all about has spoken to us it says this verse 17 and in the last days it shall be god declares that i will pour out my spirit on all flesh all right, first thing I want us to understand here when we're looking at doctrinally deep things is he is declaring the last days have begun. Now, some of us may take issue with that, but we can't take issue with this fact because it's declared here in scriptures. We just think, boy, it'd be nice if the last days was a week or a month or A year or so. The last days. Now where are we at? About 2018. That's quite a long time after. Not quite 2000 years later yet. But my goodness. These are the last days. But these days seem to be going on and on and on. But we remember in the last days. We're told in 2 Peter, there will come scoffers with their scoffing. Yeah, where is he? He hasn't come yet. What's going on? And the scripture says, Well, that's because he is patient concerning you, not wanting any of you to perish, but all should come to repentance. The scriptures are clear, and it tells us also: you must note this that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and the thousand years as. One day. So when we talk about the last days from a more divine and eternal perspective, we don't even have two days gone by. So the last days seem to us to linger, surely. And I join you in that sentiment. But that does not mean that he is delayed It is working in the proper time. But what I want us to understand is this. What is going on in this day is indicative of the last days having begun. It is, uh, there has a, a bringing to an end of the old covenant. And a bringing into place of the new covenant. The, the, the establishing of the church in a, in a very global way that is going to include all flesh. A pouring out of the spirit that is going to provide and an, an enabling and an equipping of all the saints in special, distinct, and extraordinary ways. Whereas for the children of Israel, here and there you had a guy. Who the spirit would come upon and he would prophesy. The spirit would come upon and, and he would write a section of scripture. Or he would collect a bunch of foxes. Or he would break down some pillars and posts. And Etc. Uh, uh, go out into battle in mighty ways with great victory. But in these last days. These are the days of the profound work of the spirit. In the lives of the church. Now what I want us to see. Briefly in this with again. While we work through the book of Acts. We can see more and more as we go through. But I just want to note a few thoughts. As we pass them. And when we look at what's happened so far. The tendency would be to say. And it wouldn't be wrong. What's just happened. Is these men have exercised. The gift of tongues. Did that not just happen? Yes it did. But when we read the, this is what happened, this is what was uttered through Joel, does Joel anywhere there when recited in verse 17 down through 21 ever mention tongues? No, he doesn't. What does he say? Repeatedly, he says, they will prophesy. They will Verse 17, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Verse 18, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. So I ask you, what just happened? Was it prophecy fulfilling Joel or was it tongues? Yes, they were prophesying in tongues. Or prophesying in various languages. Now, but, but what was their prophesying? We actually know what they are prophesying. Because they each hear them speaking in their own language. Verse 11. In our own tongue. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, are they making these up? No. No. The mighty works of God where do they have a glorious account and remarkable record of the mighty works of God throughout the scriptures don't they Now a lot of people like to think well prophecy has to be telling what's gonna happen No that there is a form of prophecy that is foretelling things to come but the predominant form of prophecy really even throughout the Old Testament was forth telling the prophets would come to the children of Israel and tell them this is what God would have you do which is the same thing the prophet before them told them God would have them do and the prophet before that all the way back to Moses right and so, most of the time, they were telling them the same things that had been told. Further, they were pronouncing upon them the judgments that would come. So, there seemed to be foretelling judgments, but even in foretelling judgments, was it not the scriptures that had told judgments and punishment will come when you disobey? Now, so often they're they're pronouncing things the scriptures had already revealed and simply pronouncing it right now upon the people who are listening. Now, occasionally God may be pleased also to show them his presence, to warn them specifically. He would tell them, yeah, the judgment that God is bringing on you, it's going to come from this direction and it's going to come from this man and this army. So that they could not see it as well. That's just a coincidence. That just, you know, it just so happened to work out that way. No, these are the last days. And the last days the spirit would be poured out. Now, at this point, we know that it is the apostles themselves who have have exercised this gift. But it says here... Um, I will pour out my spirit on your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see vision, your old men will dream dreams. Well, I ask you, so far, has anyone dreamed dreams? There's no record on the day of Pentecost of old men dreaming dreams. So we have the last days. It has begun with what you're seeing today with these men. But it will spread to all flesh. All flesh is regardless, male and female, young and old. Even on, it says, your male servants and female servants. So status, position in society is no bar. God will pour it out on people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. People who in the eyes of the world are great and low educated and uneducated, rich and poor, wise in worldly ways, foolish in the things of the world. God will pour out his grace across a vast multitude of mankind, bringing them to salvation and grace. What I want us to also see this, it says, I will pour out my spirit. What a powerful phrase there. With regard to pouring out of the Spirit in Acts 2.33, it says, "...being exalted at the right hand of God, Jesus, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you are seeing and hearing." So the Spirit is being spoken of poetically in terms of pouring. Now, Romans speaks of this similarly. Listen as I read Romans 5, 5 and 6. And hope does not disappoint or does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love, that God loves us, pours His Holy Spirit into our hearts. When that Holy Spirit is poured upon us into our hearts... We love him because he first loved us. And so when when God in love through Christ pours his spirit into our hearts. What happens? We now love him above all else. We love him more than father and mother. We love him more than sons and daughters. We love him more than our own lives. He becomes really our lives. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain because I go to be with Christ. It it, it all gets caught up. And how does someone go from being an enemy of God to being a lover of God? to being one who would kill the people of Christ, to one who will die for the name of Christ, as we remember exactly happened to the Apostle Paul. How does one go from one to another when he is met through the gospel with a revelation of Jesus Christ and the spirit is poured into his heart? He is not the same. She is not the same. Oh, I love this. While we were still weak at the right time, God died for the ungodly. He didn't die for us because we loved him. We were ungodly at enmity and in mercy. He died for us and poured out his spirit upon us. Even further, this poured out spirit, not only does it fill us with a love, but a genuine love then manifests itself in a life of obedience. First John 2, 5 says this, Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected or completed. By this, we may know that we are in him. What's one of the ways that we're going to know that we're in him? Because we love him so much that we live in obedience to him. If someone says, I know him. I love him. I'm a follower of Jesus. I am a Christian. But they don't want to obey him. Does that make any sense? It does not. That's why it says further in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God. I mean, this is where, how the scriptures define love. Well, that's not how I would define love. What we ought to do is gather together some saints and say, What do you think love looks like? And kind of go around the room and let everybody share. And then from the collective wisdom of men, then we'll get the real answer. Right? Wrong! The collective wisdom of men, when it comes to spiritual and eternal things, is worthless. The Word of God communicates it to us, and it says 5, three of 1 John, This is the love of God, that we obey His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. So it's not somebody who just, oh boy, I have to give up so much all the time. Every day self-denial, every day self-denial. This is miserable. What a horrible, miserable, boring life I'm living all for the name of God. No, 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 no. For the believer, the love of God is to obey His commandments, and it's not burdensome. The law was a burden that... The children of Israel and their forefathers could not bear. Jesus said, come to me. You are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for it is light and it is easy. We always leave that off. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. We are yoked together with Christ. He has put us to work. As his servants, which is a glorious thing. Some of us may not like the picture. Wait, a yoke? That's what you put on like an oxen. That's on a dumb beast. Well, we can humble ourselves a little bit, right? We We are yoked, but it's not a heavy, it's not a burdensome. It's a delightful thing because it's what we long to do. We desire to plow in his fields. And work in his service. First Peter. I love the way first Peter. uh, Verse 2 of chapter 1 says it. uh, Speaking of the salvation of God. That he's worked among the elect. Spread throughout the kingdoms. It says this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification of the spirit. For obedience to Christ. So. The earthly design of our salvation, there, there's more to it eternally, but the temporal working out design of our salvation in these days, it happens according to the foreknowledge of God. By the sanctification of the spirit. The spirit is poured out upon us. Taking us from the kingdom of darkness. To the kingdom of light. To the kingdom of his beloved son. We who are dead are now made alive. We who were at enmity with God. Loving ourselves. Now love God more than ourselves. And in this sanctifying work. Being set apart. No longer of the world. But of God. Sanctified by the spirit. This saving work is not the done done and finished work. Sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Christ, to Jesus. As it says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Oh, we're saved by grace. I always remember this growing up. We memorized Ephesians 2, 8. Maybe Sometimes 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It's the gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. And we recognize salvation is by grace. All of grace. It is a gift of God. And all of this. The faith that I have. The fact that I believe. That faith. That belief is a gift of God. I can't boast that I believed and they didn't. I believe because it's God gave me that gift. I see because he gave me the gift of sight. I believe because he gave me the gift of faith. So on. So boasting is all gone. But then I never memorized. We didn't go down to verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are not saved By good works. No, no, no. We're saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ alone. Amen? But those that he saves, he saves unto good works. Because we are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. We now, in in a real spiritual sense, have the mind of Christ in us. Have the spirit of truth, the spirit of Christ in us. Who writes on our minds and on our hearts the law of God. This is now how we live. This is, we have, as it says in Romans 6, become obedient from the heart. It's, it's not that we're obedient in, in, a, in a hesitant and, and undesirable manner. We're obedient from the heart. This is what happens when the Spirit is poured out. And not only that, it, it, shows, itself, it shows itself in a love for God. Above all else. That love manifests itself. In obedience and faithfulness. And service and integrity. But further one more verse. On this thought and we move on. It says this in verse. Uh, 1 John 317. But if anyone has. The world's goods. And sees. His brother in need. Yet closes his heart. Against him. How does. God's love abide in him. See, God's love is poured into our hearts, which makes us a people who not only serve Christ, but when we see the need in one another, we serve the need in one another. We not only love Christ, we love Christ. We not only love our elder brother, but we love all our brethren. Amen? It's a wonderful and profound thing. And this is what is to characterize God's people throughout the last days. Now, the last part of, of point one is going to go a little bit faster. This section of by Joel speaks of, and I'm going to use bad language now. Not, not bad words, but bad English grammar. Okay? And the reason why is because um, so did Samuel Clemens. I mean, so did Mark Twain, because sometimes using wrongish words make it clearer, you know, and sometimes made-up words become real words later. But this here, this section here speaks of the last days, and then it goes on to speak of the laster days. They're a little more laster than those, and in the more laster days, you've got Signs being shown in the, in the heavens, and, and, and things begin to get a, a, a little bit chaotic, a little bit profound and powerful, and not only does it speak of the, it says, and I will show you wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapors of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, and, and the moon to blood, yikes, now that's not presently going on all that much. So these are the last days. Those are the laster days. So We're getting closer to the lastest day. I know laster and lastest aren't great words, but for this, they are, right? The lastest day, the day of the Lord. These things will proceed, and then he will come. The sun will be turned to darkness. The moon will turn to blood, verse 20, before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day i mean that's it the last days the laster days the lastest days and throughout all of that time that's the only hope of salvation is in that time and who's going to be saved during that time frame really in all all, all ages verse 16 tells us the only salvation until the end of the age comes how everyone it shall come to pass Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's no other way. There's no other Lord. There's no other gospel. There's no other salvation. It ends in light of the second coming. Now, with regard to the second coming, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It really moves us on to this, the, our, our second point. The first point was... was um, the, these days, the last days, the last days, the lastest day. The second point is, not, is no longer these days, but this Jesus. They need to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That is this Jesus. It's also important to know this. When we use the, the word name, we, we use it with regard to what someone is called by. My name is Jason. Jason. My son's name is Andrew. And and someone might think, oh, all we have to do is call on the name of the Lord. So anybody who says, save me, Jesus, it's done? No. No. They have to call upon the name of the Lord. There's much more in this ancient culture to the idea of name of the Lord. Even we see towards the end of this, they are to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Name represents more than just what one is called. To call on the name of the Lord is is a call of faith. It is a declaration that he is Who he said he is. He has done all that he said he would do. He will accomplish all he has declared he will bring about. All that he says. Is believed. All that he said is received. I mean this is one of the things that's shocking in the age and world in which we live. Where people think. They can go through the scriptures and sort of pick and choose the things they're going to believe. Well, I'm going to believe that, uh, that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And I'm going to believe that, that I'm saved because of him. But I don't believe that we have to live for him. I don't believe we have to turn from our sins. Jesus paid the price for our sins. So it really doesn't matter how much we sin. Oh. Yes, he paid. I mean, it's not entirely wrong. However much an individual sins, if Christ paid for their sins, it's paid for. But when the Spirit comes to us in applying the grace of God and the merits of Christ to us, it is a transforming grace that we don't continue to walk in sin. Will someone who's saved say, well, let me sin all the more that grace will abound all the more. By no means may it never be. It's not the, not the way that it is. This Jesus. Now concerning this Jesus in verse 22. It says attested by God. With mighty works and wonders and signs. That God did through your midst. What's interesting is he piles it up. In the last days. The laster days. You're going to see all these signs and mighty things. Showing that God is bringing to an end. The purposes of creation on earth. But God even as he would show those signs. As his sovereign hand over all of his creation. Bringing to an end a culmination. His purposes. God showed his hand over his son. In irrefutable undeniable ways. I mean, so much so that at times when they would want to lay hold of Jesus, they knew they couldn't because they couldn't give an answer for how he just healed who he healed. How he just helped who he helped. They would try to trip him up even in his words, but they couldn't because all that he declared is true. This Jesus. Also, it tells us there in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according. To the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus killed. This Jesus. God raised him up. I love the way that it stated, states it in verse 24. And, and people get um, confused by this. Because, just because God's ways are so extraordinary. Well, um, Jesus wouldn't have been able to come out of the grave himself... Unless it says here, God raised him up, verse 24. Well, Jesus said, I lay down my life and I take it up again. I have the authority to lay down and the authority to take it up. It says God raised him up. Yeah, it does. Are you for a moment thinking he's not God? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, so please note that. We have a tendency every time we see God in the New Testament to think it's a reference to Father. Many times it's a reference to God, the Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one God. But that perplexes our minds, and I get it. It's challenging. (laughs) But it says, what it says concerning death, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Was it possible for death to hold him? People, Well, if it wasn't possible for death to hold him, then it's not that impressive that he overcame death. You should find all of this beyond impressive. Stunning and astounding. Not only did he die, not only did he have victory over death in the grave, but it was not possible for death to hold him. He is the sovereign son of God. It is not possible for the devil to have victory over him. It's not possible for, the, for him to fall under the temptation of the enemy. He is the impervious, impeccable son of God. The almighty one. Don't think it lower. Well, I don't know if the temptation's real if he couldn't sin. I don't know if the death was significant if it couldn't hold him. Yeah, you don't know. Or I don't understand how it could be. Fine. You don't know. You don't understand. But his death was real. His temptation was real. His victory was real. and It counts on our behalf. So when we see this. It's just. Uh, attested by God. Further, I uh, God raised him. It not only is this Jesus attested by God. Now this almost is double speak. He's attested by Scripture, which is kind of like saying he's attested by God again, right? But he here uh, the attested by God contemporaneously with signs and wonders and powers in his incarnation. He's also attested by God historically in scriptures and all the prophecies that prepare and point to him and we see those really as david begins and as as the quote of david begins in verse 25 for david says concerning him as he now quotes from psalm 16 8 through 11 and it speaks of him as having died having risen having ascended It speaks of him as a descendant who would sit on David's throne, down in verse 34. It speaks as as he alone knows how we ought to live, indeed how we do live. Remember, it says here concerning him, really, I'm going to read verse 27, really. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Well, If you were, and he kind of states it down a little bit there in verse 29, uh, Patriarch David, he died, was buried in our tomb, is with us to this day. David saw corruption. David did not have victory over Hades. Christ had victory over Hades. Christ had victory over death. If you dig up, the grave of David, you find his corrupted or decomposed body and bones. But not so with Jesus. If you go to his tomb, what do you find? He is not there, for he has risen just as he said. Amen. And so David said this way back, and everybody didn't even know what it meant. Didn't quite understand who he's talking about. Much of the scripture was masked in mystery until it's later manifested to mark the Messiah. Wow, that was a lot of M's. And I can't repeat that. But but it really, what is he talking about? I don't understand it. Who could that possibly be referring to? Well, not him. Not anybody. I don't get it. Oh, Jesus. There is one and only one, none like him. Even it says this in verse t- uh, t- 36 let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. Oh, my, that is a powerful series of phrases. Lord and Christ, this Jesus. Why was he going to be called Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. He's the one who saves his people from his sins. Messiah, he was the anointed one. He's the promised one who would sit on the throne of David and establish an everlasting throne. He is the one that was the promised seed of Abraham. All of these astounding things from the Old Testament that that were laden in mystery and confused according to the flesh. Find their fullness in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's powerful. And he's Lord. Now... That speaks not only of master, because do remember, this is accounting it for us. It's recorded for us in the Greek, but they're gathered together in Jerusalem. This is a this is likely a translation from the Aramaic, the common language of the Jews that would be being preached on that day. Right? We're aware of that, that the common language of the Jews and, and of Jerusalem was Aramaic. And so here it says, Lord, but... The words that we have in the Old Testament that are often translated with the same Greek word kurios in the Septuagint are either uh, are, are primarily two words for God. One is Yahweh, the self-existent one, and the other is Adonai. And so these words, so when he says, he has declared him to be Lord. Yeah, it's master, but it's more than master. It's, it's more than just the general boss. It is the sovereign God who is master. Oh, then we see not only uh, these days, this Jesus, but this salvation. This salvation really comes threefold. We see it in conviction, coming, and calling want to see this. He preaches this message. He declares who this Jesus is, what this Jesus has accomplished. Now for the children of Israel, remember, many more words were used on this day. For the children of Israel, they already had a, a good framework as to a lot of things that were prophesied concerning the Messiah, the fact that God is one. But in this context, surprising to them, it speaks of Jesus being declared Lord. Being declared also God. It speaks of the work that God himself is doing. And that it speaks of the spirit of God being sent. So the unpacking of father, son and Holy Spirit. Is coming forth in this. Which is a mystery to them. Hearing who he was. What he did. Attested by God. Attested by the scriptures. These men it says were cut to the heart. I love the way that um, it says that in verse 27. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The term there is, even carries the idea of being pierced. They, they, were, they were grieved. There was this sense of, oh no, we're culpable, we're sinful, we have to answer to God. What do we do? What do we do? And, and, and for, the, for us as well. Sometimes we think. Well they are the ones who participated in the event. Don't act like we are not to some, in some sense participants in the crucifixion. By the grace of God we are participants in the crucifixion. He was crucified for our sins. When we come to know that we are The reason, we are part of the reason that he was killed and crucified. We are also pierced to the heart. This had to happen because of my sin. And they said, what shall we do? What shall we do? I love that phrase because really that's a declaration born of faith. By what shall we do? That is in response. They've accepted everything that's been declared. He died. He rose. He's the promised Messiah. He he is salvation. He is forgiveness of sin. And you're guilty. Oh no. What shall we do? And he tells them. Now it is that cry. What shall we do? Really is a cry that's born of conviction and faith. And that faith is ready for whatever would be asked of us, for sure. But this is, he simply says this about, about the coming. What the coming to him looks like. On the day of Pentecost, it looked like this. 2.38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So on this day, now other, other gospel presentations say, believe and repent. Here it doesn't say believe because they're, they're already crying out in faith, what must we do? And, and he tells them, in response to this faith, in all that I've said, the recognition of your unworthiness, the recognition of who Christ is, in, in light of this faith, how, do, how is that borne out in response? You repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Says, now, baptized in the name of Jesus means, again, according to the way that he instructed it. So it's not just baptizing the name of Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 28 said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That was Jesus's instructed way. So to do it in his name is to do it his way and the way that he sent and the way that he instructed. So it it wouldn't be just mentioning his name. It would be the fuller baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which had never happened before. Remember, in Israel, uh, for the proselyte, That is the Gentile who was coming under Judaism, he had to undergo a form of baptism. Many times the children of Israel themselves, when they were unclean, they would have to undergo a form of baptism. But not like this. Not in the name of Jesus, according to the specific instruction, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where they are identified with the death, burial, And resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had to repent. And then again. uh, The being baptized here. Would be their first. uh, An act outward act of obedience. For the forgiveness of sin. uh, With a full understanding of the significance of it. And you will receive the spirit. Now. Who's going to do this? Is everyone going to do this? No, actually, at the end of verse 39, it says this. um, Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So who's going to be saved in the last day? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And who's going to call on the name of the Lord? Everyone the Lord our God calls to himself. Who's going to believe and repent and obey loving God? Those whom he pours his spirit into their heart, bringing them love and faith and repentance. Oh, so powerful. And then the last thought that I want to look at here, though it's briefly, we'll have to explode it a little more further later. This promise in this passage is it, it is both individual and international. By that, I mean, he says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He had spoken in, in the Joel. In, in the Great Commission, Jesus said, what? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. As they're here gathered this day, it's predominantly Jews that are gathered on the day of Pentecost for that feast and that event. And he says to them these words in verse 39. And this, these are challenging words because i want I'm reminding you of this. For, for, the, for the Jews, the, the, the baptisms that they would uh, go through represented unclean, need to be made clean, and represented separated from God's people, needing to be added to God's people, the proselyte baptisms. So you've got unclean and separated being the strong significances in their experience. And, and strangely enough, Peter comes in here and he puts everyone in that category. Jews in the same category as the Gentiles. Unclean and separated from God and in need of reconciliation. Because he says to them this, this promise is for You, you have to repent and believe and be baptized. You must do this. Wait, I'm already a Jew. It does not matter. You are unclean and estranged and you must come. Again, what's interesting to note is the terminology there is um, in in the Greek, it is hekostas humon, which basically means this, each and every one of you individually as I'll, I'll get, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off so again we have a multiple categories for those who are Jews there that day they need each one of them to repent and believe and follow Christ what about their descendants They're not automatically forgiven because of their parents' participation. They themselves must also repent, believe, be baptized, and follow Christ. What about about the Gentiles? They also, those who are far off, they also must believe, repent, and be baptized. Ephesians, the, the Gentiles are called those who are far off. So ultimately, it basically says this. Everyone... The scripture has imprisoned everyone under sin. And the means of salvation is the same for everyone. For Jew, for Gentile, for parent, for child, for grandparent, whoever it is, salvation is the same. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that faith working by the Spirit brings us to repentance. And that faith and repentance evidenced or declared in the identifying and obeying act of baptism. And so these are the things that we see on this day. And so I'll simply draw our conclusion. Hear these words, this Jesus. These last days, the last days have begun. And are working their way to the last day. This Jesus, son of God, son of David, died, buried, risen, ascended, reigning, and returning. This salvation convicting our souls, cutting to the heart, drawing us that we come in faith, repentance, and obedience. Calling us and we call upon him. This promise is international to all faith, to to every tongue, tribe, language, nation, and people, and to every individual. Each must repent in the hearing of the gospel. Each must believe no one is saved because of what a parent did. No one is saved because of what a grandparent is. We've had woeful generations of those kinds of things happen, don't we? Where children think, well, because my, my father's a pastor or my grandfather was a missionary, that means uh, uh, I'm safe, I'm secure. No, you're not. You must, by the grace of God, receive the gospel. Repenting, believing, and obeying. Amen? Let's pray.